At every ARBA convention, we're greeted by a banner that reads, For five days, you don't have to explain to anyone why you raise rabbits. Our hobby sometimes raises eyebrows. You show what? But once you step inside, you'll discover a world full of passionate, interesting people all working toward the ultimate goal, best in show. What can I do for you? Well, I'm looking for a white rabbit. You take the red pill. You stay in Wonderland. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. If I were looking for a white rabbit, I'd ask the Mad Hatter. Okay, rabbit, you force me to use force. I imagine that right now you're feeling a bit like Alice, tumbling down the rabbit hole. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Best in Show. We have uh, a little bit of a different format for you today as we're going to feature a discussion between two of our guests. But first, of course, um, we're going to start with what's going on in ARBA. Alan, what have we been um, seeing and talking about recently? Well, you know, it's been a weird year, of course, and it's been a, a weird maybe almost a year and a half now, and it doesn't seem to be letting up. But I just sympathize with people that are getting into the rabbit and KV industry. And even more, I sympathize with those veterans who are at that point in their rabbit and KV career where they're pursuing judge or registrar's licenses. And as you know, you have to work under a certain number of judges to complete the process. And I can't imagine right now being at the top of your game Having, having passed your test and literally having no shows to go to. So there are people all over the country that are in that position and they're, they're taking big moves to pull off these shows, including going really far. They're not able to just go to local shows to pull off those eight required shows for a judge license or in the registrar uh, side of things, those three shows. Are, are you experiencing the same frustrations? Um, yeah, I'm seeing a lot of judges, especially there's a, I know there's a big group on the East Coast that have been traveling, you know, far into the Midwest and going probably, you know, farther afield than they normally would. Uh, normally during this time of year in the spring, this is really when the show season is kicking off and most people can go to a show almost every weekend within easy driving distance. But this year it's requiring a lot more effort. But, you know, hopefully that's got an added benefit of, you know, these applicants getting a little bit out of their area, maybe seeing some different kinds of animals than they see in their local area and just getting a broader experience. I mean, we kind of always have to look at the bright side here. I think that's a great silver lining. I mean, those judges and those applicants that are having to travel farther are quite possibly getting a better education than they would have if they were at home taking, I don't want to say the easy path, but a path that's that is easier to pull off, which is going to local shows, which may be only within three or five hours from their home or even closer and getting those eight shows. So you know what, that that's a really great point. And I think that that's going to pay off. And I, I bet later on some of these judges who had to work harder, which are they're, they're struggling now are like, Hey, you know what actually it was worth it. I get to have someone else's opinion and mentorship and guidance that I otherwise wouldn't have had access to because I would have picked someone that was more local. Yeah, absolutely. You know, hopefully this will broaden their horizons before they even hit the show tables. You got it. And tonight we're joined, we're going to actually talk on that subject, which is licensing of judges. And we're going to speak to one of those applicants that has really had to go quite far to accomplish 
and pull off uh, what's required to finish her her judge license. So I'll let you segue into that later on. But that is definitely going to lead into our our main topic tonight with our guests. So, Alan, what do you have for us in our history segment for tonight? So I picked 1986, and I'm going to preface it again by where I'm at tonight. You know, we don't get to see our, our rabbit and KB friends and family very often. So I'm really fortunate where I live that there's quite a few of us that live in the area and we get together every once, once in a while and, and have dinner. So tonight it's a Monday night and I am at Deb Sandoval's house who lives about an hour from me. And there's actually a whole bunch of us that got together. Alan Barr cooked a delicious dinner. Kathy Groves is here. Uh, ARBA judges Kate Smith and Laura Lee Irby are also here. Of course, Deb Sandoval, longtime Hollandlop breeder and ARB registrar. And her partner, the always popular Nicole Brockerty, is also here with us. So we're all here and we're all listening. They're all listening live and they've all been told to not tune in or not to uh, chime in too too deeply when some of these topics come up tonight. But that's some of the things that we as rabbit people have had to do uh, during these times because we love our people. We love to get together. So I'm at Deb's house. That was a, a long segue into what I'm going to talk about tonight. But, but Deb's been around and doing Hollands with Nicole since the 80s. And I said, hey, Deb, do you have any old Hollandlop stuff in your archives? And she's like, oh, yeah, yeah, come back here. And she opened up this treasure chest of old documents. And I pulled out the oldest thing I could find. And that was the Hollandlop Rabbit Specialty Club's second edition official guidebook and standard of perfection from 1986. Interestingly enough, the title includes guidebook and standard of perfection. And you're going to love this. When I opened it up, and by the way, it's it's... It's like old paper. It's just, it's a relic. I mean, I, I feel like I should be. I should <laughs> I'm be older than that book is. Watch out. <laughs> well, so am I, but <clears throat> but we're a little more preserved than this book, but I feel like I should have gloves on. So you're going to love this. One of your mentors, Connell Addison, was actually the president of the Holland Lop Rabbit Specialty Club back in 1986. I did and not know that. Crazy stuff, right? Wow. I mean, he was, he's such an icon and he had a mark on the industry throughout. But I, I also did not know that he was president of this club. And in his guidebook um, welcome letter, he, uh, he says a few things, but I want to read one paragraph. He goes, our club is one of the newest and fastest growing specialty clubs in the ARBA. The reason for this is that it has been the uniqueness, character, and personality of the rabbit. This personality, either at home or on the show table, will captivate you. So this is back at the natal stages of the Hall and Love breed. It's their second edition guidebook. And Connell, president, is m- remarking on this breed's uniqueness in their character. And how many times do we say today, like, animated, cute, just rabbits that make you stop in your tracks, those, those Hall and Lops. They're just, there's nothing like them, right? Oh, they have personality plus on the judging table. And and I, from what I understand, it's a little different personality at home versus at the show. Um <laughs> We know, you know, sometimes on multiple shows, we're like, oh, no, we've got Holland Lops for the third time. We're going to be snatching them out of the air. They're they're uh, going to be a little feisty, but they're just they're really charming animals. And they've got they've got a lot of personality to them. I've noticed that they're sometimes in the show table a little willful, um, a little more stubborn and persistent than some other breeds, especially, you know, when they want out of a coop or want their own way. But, hey, I respect that. I'm a little the same way myself. So <laughs> I, I, I see this. And I've mentioned it before, but like that Holland Lop Junior Doe class I did once at the Pennsylvania State Convention in February when all of the Holland Lops, there's probably like 30 Junior Does in a class, and they, they get out of their cold barn and they're in this warm building for the first time in months, <laughs> and they are like popcorn on those coops. It was That was a fun judging day. Um, it's a whack-a-mole when you get it. it coops like that. <laughs> 
Uh, but back to the guidebook. The vice president, interestingly enough, was Richard Steinberg from Minnesota. I think you know him. A lot of us do. He's uh-huh. still an active judge. Yeah. Uh, from Zone 2, uh, the regional director for the Holland Lab Club was none other than Chris Zemney. Of course. And she uh, writes a little blurb in here, too. And I'm going to uh, hone in on one thing that she says because it's very Chris-like. And it, it really encompasses her character. It says, if I can give one message, it would be to participate. And by the way, that's in capital letters. Participate. The HLRSC exists for you. Get to know your fellow breeders and officers. Be sure to share your ideas, suggestions, or problems. If you can attend the ARBA convention or a Hall & National show, do so. Some of the best times have been at these shows. It gives you a chance to renew old friendships and make new ones. And there is nothing more exciting than seeing rows and rows of quality Holland Lops from all over the country. Isn't that so, Chris? It is. And it holds true all these years later in any it breed. Sure does. Yes, it does. Uh, moving on in the guidebook, Alec Brooks, who was actually the founder and the first president of the Holland Lop breed, he writes uh, in a, an article entitled, What is Your Goal in Holland's? And I won't read the whole thing, but there's one interesting uh, piece of this, which he says, over the past few years, there has been considerable controversy over the way the Holland Lops are being judged. It is not important how any one show is judged, who judged it, or even who won it. More important is that you, the individual breeder, must keep in sight your own goals as to exactly what characteristics you want your line of Holland Lops to have. As the breed grows and types becomes uh, more established over the years, the judging will coincide with the correct type out of necessity. My own preferences, as well as those of Mr. Adrian DeCock, the original developer of the Holland Lop in, the, in Europe, are towards the head and ear development like those of, I think his name was Bommel. He must have been an iconic Holland Lop back in the day, pictured elsewhere in this guidebook. It is my hope that the serious Holland Lop breeder will have a similar goal in the development of their breed. And then lastly, I'm going to share the Holland Lop standard from 1986, also listed in the guidebook. It's so interesting because... The point schedule is a little different than the one we have today, and I pulled up our current standard to contrast some of the points. But, for example, general type back in 1986 for the Holland Lop was given 60 points. Today we give 84 points. The body back then also encompassed in type got 25 points. Today, body and bone get a total of 42, 32 of which goes to body. Interestingly enough, back then, bone did not receive individual points. Like today, we have so much emphasis on bone in the Holland Lop breed and uniquely give 10 points to bone, feet, and legs. Those are interesting, but this is where it gets really kind of crazy. Fur today is worth seven points in Holland. Back then, fur was 15 points. Oh, wow. And, right? But this is, this is, this is going to like blow your socks off. Back then, in 1986, the Holland Lop breed gave 15 points to color and markings. Today, we give four points. Oh, wow. That is quite isn't, a shift. Isn't that nuts? I, you can't even imagine focusing on, on color and fur and markings when we judge Holland I mean, of course, we get down to those points at some of the bigger classes, but they're certainly not the focus of what we're doing. Right, right. They, uh, an animal with great fur color is never going to beat an animal with great structure, you know, exactly. if it doesn't have that to go along with the fur and color. So those are my tidbits back from 1986 uh, for this time in. Do you have anything from current events back then? 
1986 was quite a year. Um, in January, we started out with um, the Challenger disaster when the space shuttle Challenger um, exploded a few seconds after takeoff over Florida, um, a very sad event in our history. And we just memorialized the, um, I think, 35th anniversary of this a few weeks ago. Um, I remember I was a kid then, and, and years later, I'm surprised at how young I was, but I still vividly remember that and the speech that President Reagan gave that night. Um, in February, the Beechcraft Starship had its maiden flight. There's a little uh, bit for our aviation geeks. Beechcraft was also headquartered in Wichita. Um, in April, the Beirut heist hostage crisis began and the Chernobyl disaster in the Ukraine. I told you this was an eventful year. Um, a little bit of happy news, at least for a while in July, when Prince Andrew, Duke of York, married Sarah Ferguson. And then in November, there were the beginnings of the Iran-Contra affair. So um, quite quite a year in um, world history. I remember hearing about a lot of those topics on the news every night when I was a kid. Um, the top TV shows in 1986. Do you have any guesses about that? Gosh, 1986? Well, I have to admit, I was three years old. <laughs> I had, I was not even in kindergarten yet. Um, uh, I'm really going to give away a lot about my personality right now. I'm really hoping Golden Girls is number one. It was number five. Number it was five. in the top Are five. Yeah. God, people, that, people did not know any better back then, apparently. No. Um, number one, a little problematic nowadays, was The Cosby Show. Hey, um, there you go. Number two was Family Ties. Number three that. was Cheers. Number four was Murder, She Wrote. <laughs> Good old Angela Lansbury. Uh-huh. I don't know how that topped the Golden Girls, but it must have been relatively new. <laughs> I, I have no, it was such a snoozer compared to Golden Girls, but whatever. Oh, yeah. Um, the number one song in 1986 was Take My Breath Away by Berlin. Um, I'm sure everybody, you know, can hum along with that song. I must admit, I'm a horrible child of the 80s. I do not like power ballads. I do not like Madonna. <laughs> oh, I do not like any you of have, that. You have an inner Cindy Lauper. I know it. Come on. Uh, well, maybe a little bit of that. But the, the Cynthia power ballads, please no. <laughs> I do um, 90s on never... 9. I don't do 80s on 8. <laughs> Uh, clearly, if you and I ever travel together, we're listening to podcasts because <laughs> our music differences. I'm all about the ballads, okay? Sorry. Oh. <laughs> um, the Academy Award for Best Film that year went to Out of Africa. And the 1986 Super Bowl was, thank goodness, won by the Chicago Bears after they, of course, had released the Super Bowl shuffle. So they saved a little bit of face by winning that <laughs> game that year. Very cool. All right. Always great to take a, a blast back in the past, both in rabbits and caveys and also in our world. So those are those are those are some fun events. And as you said, it was an eventful year. Yes, it was. All right. So I think it's time to get to the bulk of our podcast eight best in show. And we're going to dedicate that to judge licenses. So I'm going to hand this one over to you. All right. Um, this is, I guess, sort of our first semi-live episode. Um, we're not broadcasting live, but we are recording in front of a live audience. So a little bit different um, format. Today, our two guests are Kathy Groves and Alan Barr. Kathy joined the ARBA in 2003 and has raised Polish since that time. She has three times won Best of Breed at the Polish National Show. And today she focuses a lot of her efforts on her Black American cavies. She is one of our newest ARBA licensed rabbit judges and is also a KV registrar. And Kathy lives in the Sierra Nevada mountains in Central California. Alan Barr joined the ARBA in 1967, earned his ARBA rabbit judges license in 1974 and his KV license in 1975. 
He's ARBA judge number 352. He's a lifetime judge and one of the earliest um, ARBA judges who is still active today. He raises Dutch today, great choice, and is currently working on the Gold Dutch COD. Alan and Kathy, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you so much. So uh, my first question for you, Kathy, um, tell us a little bit about your experiences working on your license during the pandemic. It's been very interesting. (laughs) I uh, ended up taking my test a little bit later because I had to find someone to test with, and that was a little difficult to do. And then once I passed the test... I normally could have completed all of my eight assists within easily a matter of one to two months. And it took me a lot longer to do that. And I've had to travel rather extensively to get it done. So what's the farthest that you've traveled? Uh, Let's see. Well, that would probably be Georgia. Gone to Georgia, Illinois, and Texas, Texas. as well as California. So, Alan, how does this differ from um, the process and the experience when you received your judge's license in 1974? Oh, wow. To be honest, I don't think it was taken as seriously back then. You know, I, it, it seems uh, we you could accomplish getting all the shows pretty much locally. You didn't have to travel very far. Um, but there wasn't. Uh, there wasn't a lot of focus on the knowledge of the standard, and there wasn't a lot of focus on the mechanics of being able to do a good job. Um, thank goodness judges' conferences came through. Hands-on judges' conferences came through. Um, communication with social media came through. A lot more information was shared. Back, back in my day, information was done by mail. So... You know, getting the results and stuff took a long time, you know, to answer everything as compared with um, I've known of some judges that could, that knew within 24 hours that they got their license, you know, from having it all done. That's really interesting. Um, so what were the criteria then for evaluating applicants when they worked with judges? Well, back also back in my time when I did it, there wasn't as many breeds. So uh, the breeds that you worked were the most popular breeds in the area at that time. So I was known to raise a lot of fancy rabbits, a lot of different ones. So I was fortunate enough that I had the knowledge and the hands-on on a lot of the stuff. But if I, if, it hadn't, if I hadn't wanted to gain that knowledge, I don't know where I would have picked up a lot of the breeds and stuff, you know, that, that we had. Um, this is when Netherland Dwarfs first started to be shown, you guys. So, you know, I mean, uh, Hollands weren't even around then. So, uh, you know, there's been some major breakthroughs and a lot of changes. So I've seen a lot of growth. And, uh, and, and to that point, if you laid a standard on the table from when I started working and this current one that just got released, it's four times as thick. Wow. So I think that in itself, just the, the amount of knowledge that is that you have to go through now and what you have to work for now is much, much greater than it was when I was, when I first started. That's very interesting because I think there is sometimes a perception now that it's too easy to get a judge's license, you know, that people just pick their friends and get passed. But 
but what you're telling me is that there's a, just a, a bigger barrier to even passing those tests than there used to be, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. Again, the, the, the focus on the judges' conferences and the, and the pass-through of knowledge from a presenter to the judges in the room, if I was to rate that, was a little bit better than poor. Okay. Wow. You know, there's been a big difference now. I mean, the the information that is available to the people now, people should be very fortunate, should be very thankful about the talent and all the work that's going in now that's being shared. This is an, this is a, an example. What you are doing and what Alan's doing uh, fits right in to, to getting this information out in front of people so that they're much more prepared. Well, that is our goal. So, Kathy, besides just studying the standard, what are some things that you've done to prepare yourself to be ready to take the test and work with judges? Well, uh, an awful lot of studying, definitely an awful lot of studying, a lot of visiting uh, private rabbitries, looking at rabbits, getting information from a breeder's perspective. I was fortunate enough to travel when Ari from Indonesia came and to get her license. And so I I was really able to go to a lot of barns and get breeders input. And that makes a huge difference. You can read it all day long in the book, but until you actually see it, and then you get the interpretation that comes from someone that has been breeding that rabbit for so many years, that's just worth its weight in gold. That is a really um, valuable part of some of that education that we work on before we get behind the table. And what are some things that, that you think you've learned while working with judges? Mm, oh, geez. It's so vast the the knowledge in that book and the things that you need to know are just tremendous. But I think the biggest thing that I've learned from actually working with the judges is, you know, confidence. You have to have confidence. You have to own your table. You have to be able to make decisions, whether you're second guessing yourself or not, you still have to make that decision and you have to come across strong and quick and get it done. So that's been a huge learning lesson for me. And not only that, just everything that they have to offer They have the years and years of experience. And as a new judge stepping in, you're doing something that you've never done before. A brain surgeon gets to probably practice surgery or do something. But in order to get behind the table and actually judge, you have eight assists that you do and you pretty much have to be ready to roll from there. Yeah, it does take a a great amount of confidence. So, um, Alan, who are some of your mentors that helped you through this process or maybe you inspired you to become a judge? Well, I, I grew up in Arizona, so Arizona isn't really a hotbed of uh, big-name breeders. But my, my first mentor was a, a gentleman named Ernie Parks who was from Ohio who moved out to Arizona. And Ernie had a rabbit and KB license. So, And along with that, if you can picture, you would go to a show – and they were mostly commercial rabbits. Maybe uh, I remember sat and started to get real big. Uh, and they had different colors. Oh, my gosh. You didn't have New Zealands and cows. You had, had coppers and reds and Siamese. And that was like really something. And then the dwarfs came in. And, oh, my God, 
that just opened up the floodgates for the knowledge that you needed to have for color. Prior to that point, people really weren't all that, you know, enthused with color. It wasn't all, wasn't that big of a thing. But um, I, I I think Ernie was the first one that started. There was a a, a, a showman. He was a rabbit judge, but really a showman. His name was um, George Sutherland, and his his rabbitry uh, was uh, Bunny Grove. And he had, I mean, when I first met him, he made something like 400 grand champions. And at that time, you had to really work hard to get a, you know, to pick up a grand champion back at that point. And he was really good. And he was really good. And then there was another gentleman named Leland Clark who raised Californians. And uh, I want to say that I was, I was, you know, that those people on the West Coast that were really good. But the first big show that I went to was in 1970 at the Colorado State Fair. And that's where I met a man that was the most influential to me for my whole life and showing until he passed. And that was Fibber. Uh, Fibber McGee, and, and uh, I never, he, he got me to dream. Fibber got me to dream in rabbits to where I wasn't really, I wasn't really there. To meet somebody who used to count the amount of pellets that his rabbits ate to finish him out was amazing to me. And, uh, and not only did he go, not, for me at that time, and I would raise rabbits, I'd go in a show and I'd have one good rabbit or something. You know, I'd take 10 to a show, but I'd have one good one. Oh, my God. That guy walked into a show and he'd have 20 or 30 good ones. Every one he brought was good. And so not only did I learn, but through him, it was like my advanced degree, okay, taking my advanced degree. And at that time uh, is when the explosion was for depth of body. Prior to that, you know, I, I, I got my license and stuff where depth wasn't even, it, it didn't even exist. Californians were big and wide. That's what you wanted, big and wide. There's no such thing as a top line and, and depth of body. And thank God, um, you know, Fiverr went and pushed that through with Bagby and Zahn, you know, back, back in Ohio, you know, the New Zealand breeders. But um, but I wasn't a big commercial guy. I was a fancy rabbit guy. So I got to meet some very dedicated people. Daryl Bramhall, you know, uh, was a good example back at that time. There's a lot of really nice guys and a lot of things. But, you know, Briny, the shows were a hell of a lot smaller back when I started. So, you know, this whole thing has gotten so much harder to do. Yeah, yeah, there's just, there's a much steeper knowledge curve, it seems like. But then again, um, it seems like t in order to, you know, stay with the hobby, there's been a constant need to relearn, reevaluate, and, you know, kind of keep up with what's going on. And, and that's pretty self-driven too, I'm sure. Well, you know, I, I'm going to circle back to what Alan brought up a few minutes ago, you know, when he first started this thing, talking about Hollands and the guidebook and the points. You know, if you're keeping track of this stuff and a standard changes on you all of a sudden, um, that's a lot to 
that that's a lot to keep after a lot to, you know english lop standard the new 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 standard is pretty significantly changed but on the hollands i got to tell you i i was there when this whole thing started and to go to four points on color um that that to me um I understand the rationale, but it makes it for our judges, I think, harder. You know, I, I, I understand that they wanted to focus on the body type and they did that, but four points is not a true assessment of color for any breed. And I think that that could be corrected a little bit. I think they can go back now because they did the, they did the work that they needed to. But if you analyze the standards and you're you're cognizant of what your job is and how you need to do that. And then how you impact that onto others, man, oh man, it's a hard job right now. Yeah, it is. So Kathy, tell us a little bit about how you got started in rabbits and what inspired you to take the step to become a judge and who inspired you to take those steps. Well, actually my, our first breed was a Holland from Chris Semney. We had that. My daughter had got that rabbit for her 10th birthday we hauled that one rabbit around for a year and never got another rabbit and showed it. And then she got a little tired of it. She was doing other larger animals. And after a year of doing that, I fell in love with the rabbits. And then I took about six months to look for breeds that I wanted and ultimately ended up with Polish. I had a few others along the way. I always liked Florida whites but um, I just sort of stuck with those. And, you know, like with any breed, it's, it's always a challenge. You're always trying to make it better. And I just always felt like, how could I get another breed if I haven't fixed this one yet? So I just sort of stuck with it all these years. And um, I've transitioned a little bit into a pig person now, but um, I still have my Polish. I still love them. So then what and who inspired you to take the step to become a judge? Well, it would be definitely Alan. It would be all his fault. <laughs> Actually, you know, I'm I'm older than a lot of people. <laughs> um, I'm in my mid-60s now. And I would say that I really wanted to get my registrar's license. And I probably wanted to do it for about five years. But I just felt like there's no way. I would never be able to learn all that information was just too vast and sometimes contradictory with the, you know, chestnut is called this, but it's also called this, this, and this. And so it took me a long time. I don't, when I took my registrar's test, I don't think I had taken a test for 20 years, I think. And um, I just beat myself up over that. I just felt like I could never do it. I wouldn't pass. And oh my God, what if I didn't pass? Like the world would be over. It would be no big deal. I could just take it again. But I would say that Alan was probably my biggest supporter to tell me, you can do this. You've been studying a long time. So I finally got up enough nerve to take it and I passed it and it was fine. I right away took my KV registrars because then I didn't care whether I passed or not. I, you know, I had nothing to lose. So uh, it was a really good, long, lengthy process. But I will say that studying for your registrars doesn't even scrape the surface of studying for your judges. It's just so much more vast and detailed and 
complicated and changing and you have to keep abreast of what's going on. And then you have to be able to learn to listen to the people who actually breed those rabbits and then read the standard again and then interpret it, you know, based on all that information. So it's a never ending. It's always changing. And it's just really something to strive for. And the reason I decided to take the judges test is it was just the next progression. It wasn't so much getting out there and judging uh, like I'm not 20 anymore. I don't want to travel every single weekend, but really with as much studying as I had done and I had helped a lot of people study, it was sort of would have been a shame to not at least try and to accomplish that goal. You know, you bring up a really good point about, um, you know, not having to take a test for very long. Um, a lot of people, of course, start the registrar's process, the judge's license process when they're in high school or college anymore. Um, I did the same thing myself. And and you're right. When I began that, I mean, studying was what I did all day, every day. I took tests all the time. Um, so the idea of preparing for that maybe wasn't as challenging. Um you know, now thinking about doing that again, I've been out of that realm for a little while now. And and that kind of adds an extra, I guess, level of complexity to the whole scenario. It does. Um, One interesting thing that I did find was I, I took my test, I passed my test, and I couldn't believe how many mothers and older women came up to me and said, oh my gosh, I can't believe you did that. And I told every one of them, if I can do it, you can do it. And then subsequently we had Kelly Hind went for hers. There was a couple of other people that, you know, everybody kind of jumped on the bandwagon and it, it, it sort of had, a, there was a movement in California where we saw a, an insurgence of some older registrars coming in. Lorena took hers and it was just really interesting to see that, you know, you're used to seeing young kids, 19, 20 year olds doing it, but you don't often see a grandma in her 60s doing it. And it was really nice to um, be able to do that and maybe be a role model for somebody or to make somebody think, well, gee, they can do this too. Absolutely. Um, that's that's a really neat story. I knew that that all those ladies had accomplished that, but I didn't know that you were the one that kind of kickstarted that. Um, I sort of had the opposite experience. I was kind of in that first wave of high school age registrars and pretty young judges. And so we had a little bit of the same sort of experience like, oh, wow, this person can do it. Maybe I can too. So it's interesting to see that pendulum swing back because this really is, you know, something for anybody at any age. Absolutely. If you're willing to study and you're willing to do the work and it's something you want to do, then it's possible. And it's fun work too. Yes, it can be. It can be very challenging. <laughs> Some of those big breeds are a little intimidating, but you just have to get in there and get it done. So, Alan, what kind of words of advice would you have for someone who's just starting out as a judge in this day and time? Uh, uh, thank you. I, actually, there's a couple of things I have. The first, the first thing that that I usually ask someone who's gone down that endeavor is I usually ask them why. That's my very first question. Why did you become a judge? And I get a lot of strange answers. I get anything from, I get anything from, I love to travel. 
I did it because my friends did it. I like rabbits. I like Katie's. Get a lot of weird answers. Okay. <laughs> what, I'm not saying that one answer is better than another. There, I, I'm not saying which answer is the right one. I'm just saying you can get a lot to feel and get a lot to know about somebody when you ask them about doing it. But the one thing that uh, that I wish would be a part of this would be to make new judges give back. Because I believe that when someone becomes a judge and they've gone through all this effort and all this work, they're actually doing it on the shoulders of a lot of other people. And if everybody was just out for themselves and whatever, this thing isn't going to work. You have to give back. Uh, Alan Messick gives back tremendously more than, than other people. And it comes down to that education or whatever. And you, you cannot know everything in this standard fully. You know where to go. A good engineer knows where to get the information. Doesn't know how to do it yet, but knows where to get the information. This is the same thing. You know where they get the information, but how you impart it and what you need to do. And we don't have time anymore. When, when I was doing this, there was one show for the day. And when that show was done, we used to hang around and put rabbits on the table and people that were studying for their judge's license could ask questions of other judges that were there in a very un, uh, I, I want to say not quite as nervous of an environment as the regular show itself. You can see what mistakes were done at the show and laugh about them and then, you know, put rabbits up on the table and get different opinions from people. And that's where I really got a lot of what I learned you know, how I expanded my knowledge quite a bit was in those in those types of environments. Like Kathy mentioned, going to a breeder's place. But, you know, the breeders are nice, and that's good to do. But, God, I want to be at the show. I want those other judges that come from other parts of the country. And I want to put an English Angora and get their thoughts of what, you know, what they thought for, you know, how the wool was, how the wool laid and, and everything. So um, I... I think that that we're lacking in that now. We don't we don't have strong times. We have to wait for a, a judges conference, and we don't have enough of them. But the thing that's still a little bit weak on a judges conference is is the mental attitude of the people going in the room. Most of the people go in. I have to say it. They go in to sign in, and they go in to sign out. And the knowledge of why they need to be there. It doesn't necessarily transfer over all the time. That being said, I think a judge needs to be able to have to go to judges conferences, whatever, and they must present because that's where you learn this stuff. If you have to present it and be in front of it, you'll know it better. And uh, to get this thing to continue to grow, we have to change what's been happening we're going to have to work harder at it. And um, Brian, if I could just jump in on one other thing. Um, you know, we talk about this process of becoming a judge, but we don't talk about the mechanics. There isn't a mechanics standard of perfection. 
There isn't one that tells you how to handle a large class. There isn't one that tells you how to handle a bad exhibitor. There isn't one that tells you how you handle bad show equipment. There isn't one to handle how you take a bid. There isn't one to handle when your plane doesn't show up and you miss a flight for a show. It doesn't tell you how to get through and to do all that. Some of us have friends that we can get on the phone and call to get our way out of that. But what I'm saying is, is that there's a whole hell of a lot of this thing that you don't train on that we need to be trained on. And it's just as important as the standard. Uh, The easiest thing, I I hope when this plays in front of other people, you know, I'm sitting here talking and a lot of people are confused, but I'll try and dumb it down a little bit more. I've worked my eight shows I've worked very hard. I've studied the standard and I've made very good inroads to every one of those judges. And the biggest class that I had in those eight shows, maybe 12. And then I go into convention. My, 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 my breeders on my breed nominated me and I go in and I judge and I've got 259 solid Holland Lop Junior Does on my first convention assignment. A lot of people don't know this, but I've been in a time when a show at a show where a judge lost it and just couldn't do it, and they resigned at the show. They literally turned in their license at the show because they couldn't do it. Thank God we don't have that as much. But I'll tell you what: mentally, there's a lot of uncomfortable judges, and they. They cry or they drink or whatever. I don't know in order to get through it. But, you know, it's a problem that we need to talk about. And quite frankly, we're, we put our heads in the sand and we don't talk about the, the bad things. And that's why on a lot of judges conferences, because I've been around a while, they ask me to talk about the difficult thing. Okay. Uh, disqualifying an entry for a breeder who's cheating. Nobody trains you to do that. But you know what? You have to do that. This is what Kathy was saying. And thank goodness, a brand new judge. And I hear her say that she owns that table. That is a true thing. You have to own all that stuff. But there's there's a lot of stuff, Briny, that we haven't got to yet. And I think with your diligence and Alan and you guys are creative as you are, I think we're going to get there to close the ends on all that stuff. But we better start closing it because right now, when we go to do a show, many times I'm judging four shows in one day. And to be honest, there's just not enough time to sort out stuff that's wrong or whatever. If everything works right, it's good. If something falls apart, we're going to have an issue. And I think we just need to kind of get through that. I hope that helps. I didn't mean to cover some difficult things so long, Briny, but that's one thing I wish we would focus on. No, those are those are really interesting points. Um, and, you know, that's something something that I've said, you know, someone gets a judge's license, they they want to do convention. And I'm sitting here thinking, OK, I know, you know what a good rabbit is in your breed. But do you know how to sort a class? Um, that's like you said, that's something you can't learn until you just do it. Um, but, yeah, I, I think some of those um, maybe you know, you had a different term for it, but I call them kind of like maybe the softer skills of judging the stuff that doesn't involve just knowledge of the standard is a great, great opportunity for education. And of course our, 
our most experienced judges are the best sources of that because they've they've seen a lot and they've been a lot of places and done a lot of things. Um, I know that um, we had a presentation at the Reno convention. Um, we had a, a panel discussion on judging those large classes. And some very experienced judges up there, you know, gave people handouts. And, and I wish we saw more judges at those things. I know convention is a very busy time. Um, and that's maybe something that doesn't, doesn't interest a lot of the, the participants that come just to learn about breeds of rabbits. But it's something that judges need to know. And it's, it's great education. So, Kathy, um, what kind of questions would you have or, or what sort of things do you kind of look forward to picking up from judges who have been there and done a lot of that? Oh, on the sorting of classes and that sort of thing. Well, well, I've had a lot of pointers from people about, you know, markers, no markers. Um, you, regardless of whether you have markers or not, you still have to be able to recognize the rabbit because what if somebody moves your marker? And so I guess everybody has a different way of doing it and you just sort of have to get in there and try to figure it out for yourself what works best for you. So, um, you know, not having done a class of 200 and some rabbits, I'd be nervous as heck, but I guess I would just have to come up with some sort of a system to get through it. But you definitely have to be strong and you have to be able to ignore what's going on around you because people will talk and sometimes they say things that, make you feel bad, but you just got to put your head down and get it done. That's been the easiest thing for me is to just not allow anything else to interfere. I have a job to do and I just need to do it and focus on that. You know, it's great. You want to be there and you want to exhibitors are like you, you want to be somewhat social, but if you you're in a situation where you're uncomfortable and you're just not sure what to do, the best thing you can do is ignore everything else and focus on the one job that you do have in front of you. So, That's really good advice. Um, and I think that something that judges in kind of in all stages of the process can, can really learn from. Um, and I know exhibitors want different things of us, and I, that's something that's, that's tough to balance the table too. I tend to be a little bit more of a head-down judge, um, but there are some exhibitors that really want judges that are there to talk to them. And and I get that, you know, we're there to encourage and we're there to help and give advice that hopefully is, you know, beneficial to their breeding program. But it can't be at the expense of not giving the rabbits their fair due or, you know, not being able to pull our fair weight as a judge. Right, because you you know, you're going to, going to get labeled the chatty one or, you know, you're going to end up being remembered that judge that's the last one in the show because you were too busy talking. And I think that that will come with time. The better you get at sorting rabbits behind the table, then you can take the opportunity to relax a little bit and uh, be a little more social with people. Uh, but at first, you know, you're going to develop a reputation and you'd be better off developing one that says, Oh gee, they can get their job done. I'd rather be able to get my job done than to be labeled the friendly judge. So. 
I'm very much the same. <laughs> so, um, Alan, what are some of the, the best experiences or the highlights of your judging career, maybe experiences that you wish all judges could have? Oh, wow. Doing New Zealand's at the convention was one. Um, I had Harry Rice, Fibber, and um, I can't think of the third gentleman. He was out of Tennessee, New Zealand breeder. He wasn't a judge. But they were the top three guys of that realm. And being able to pick best to breed in front of them and matching what they believed in is what the way I went for my decision. Um, that was pretty serious, and that was a really good one. Another one was doing Dutch at the convention with Randy Shoemaker. Randy had never had a had Dutch at that point. We did it at a California convention, so he actually had it a little easy. <laughs> but it was, you know, Randy was pretty well versed. And when he was all done, he said his mind was mentally frayed. He had never worked so hard in looking at a, at a group of rabbits, you know, at the convention, that was the hardest at that time, up to that point that he'd ever worked. And, uh, which I thought was kind of funny. I mean, many, many rabbits that he's ever done, but sharing that experience with him. And, you know, when you get to judge the, your breed at convention, that's always a lot of fun. And, um, now that I convention you judged Dutch with Randy, that was uh, Louisville in 2008, wasn't it? Yeah, I think so. I thought it was California, but it, maybe, maybe it was Louisville. So, Alan, do you remember that we actually met at that show? Yes. And I had a black senior doe. It was the first, um, my, really my big first national show since I had rebuilt my herd following the barn fire. And uh, you had the black that. senior doe class. And I won with a doe who had actually had a few litters, but bounced back. And I could not stop crying because I'm a terrible, happy crier. <laughs> and I was standing there just bawling. And you said, if you don't stop that, I'm going to start crying too. So I went away. And then I came back and won the Blue Senior Buck class. And there was some more crying. <laughs> but it was a fun day. It was one of my very favorite show memories as well. Well, the rabbits were very worthy to make all that emotion carry. You did a great job. Well, thank you. So, People Kathy. People don't seem to understand how hard it is on Dutch. I, I'm sorry, but all breeds are hard, but there's a lot of broken dreams on Dutch breeding. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, the number of litters you get where... You know, you're so excited about a little one, and then it grows, and you see a spot in the eye or a freckle in the nose, <laughs> or Absolutely. just, <laughs> you know, oh, you get excited from the then the day you open the nest box, and then something comes along. But there's always there always seems to be a little bit of hope when you need it too. Yeah, I, I um, it's it's very humbling, you know, I. One reason I like to be a judge is I get a chance to see a lot of beautiful standard bred rabbits. There's no way I could do myself. I would love to do them myself, but uh, 
I'm I'm pretty damn lucky to be able to do what I do. Yeah, That's- I would agree. And you had said that, you know, you ask people why they want to be judges. And the reason that I wanted to be a judge is because I knew I could never raise all of these breeds, but I wanted to help improve all of them. And, and you I have, yeah. That if I could do that by, you know, giving some helpful feedback and helping other people to do that, that, that that's, that's why I wanted to do this. Well, yeah, I mean, that to me is real, the real, the real cut. I mean, the standard of perfection is my big thing and how I breed and my mechanics of what I do for breeding. That's where, that's where it's at. You know, the shows come and go and, you know, one rabbit wins over another one, you know, it's kind of temporal, but the basis of the standard and how we need to apply it and, and what's there, um, we're, we've got a pretty great hobby to be focused, to have that. And, uh, we don't do it good enough. I, th- this is a start. Thank God. You know, every little bit will be better, but you've seen how thick the latest standard is. It's, it's humbling. <laughs> I, I'm sorry. It's just, and next one's going to be thicker. There's going to be more. I mean, there's more stuff all the time. It's, this is crazy. Absolutely crazy. So, you know, to become a judge now, you got to have, you got to have your, your big boy pants on all the time per I'm quoting that from Kathy. It's really true. <laughs> I said big girl pants. Well. <laughs> Go on, Brain, take it over. I'm done. I can't give you <laughs> So um we've talked about some of your most memorable experiences. Um Kathy, what are some experiences that you're really hoping to have as a judge or what are some maybe bucket list shows for you? Oh, gee, I can't even think of, I haven't really had a chance to really think about that. I, I think I'm still in just awe of getting the whole process done. And, um, you know, people would say, oh, oh, you know, I might like to judge like a Polish National. Uh, national show. I think that would be pretty neat to do that you know from attending it all the time and um winning it several times I mean I know what it takes to do that and I at least have been that route I'm I'm not I wouldn't if I went to a Polish national show I clearly would know what it took to get there and to win a show like that so I think that would probably be on my bucket list Yeah, it's always, yeah, like Alan was talking about, when it's our own breed, we're really able to appreciate the complexity of it. Absolutely. And, you know, this is something that I did learn, too, through this whole judging process. So, you know, you know your breed, right? We all know our breeds, and we all know our breeds very well. However, we know them from a breeder's standpoint, not from a judge's standpoint, I literally had to reevaluate how I look at the rabbits, how the Polish breed for me, I know as a breeder, I want a certain thing, but if I break those points down and I go per the SOP, 
I may not be choosing the same rabbit that I would choose as a breeder. And that's a very difficult thing to have to relearn because it took years and years to learn what I want in my herd. But I have to reevaluate what I want for best of breed now. And that's so true. Um uh, I think sometimes people think it's easier for us to judge our own breeds. And in some ways it is, but in other ways it's harder because we do have to adjust our thinking like that. It's easier to comment on your own breed, but you have to totally ignore what you quote unquote like, right? Because the standard isn't about what we like. The standard is about the point system and the evaluation of a breed and so that's, it's very difficult. They would think that it would be easy. You would think it would be easier, but I'm here to say that it was more difficult. And that was a real eye opener for me. And I happened to be um, one of my assists. I was working Polish and there was just no way I would have picked the rabbit that that judge picked. But when we broke it down into points, it really was right. It fit. So that was a great thing to learn because, you know, if you have to do that with your own breed, then you have to do that with other ones as well. So what are some breeds that you um, enjoy judging besides Polish? Well, not checker giants, I'm sure. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and especially coming from Polish, Okay, I can give me a little three pound rabbit, no problem, but don't give me a Flemish giant, please. But that is one thing. You know what? I would have to say that was the biggest challenge for me um, was handling those larger rabbits on a consistent basis because, yes, I've handled them before, but I didn't have to handle like 70 unruly English spots, right? <laughs> And so, and if all the rabbits were good, that would be great. But let's face it, they're not. And they're not necessarily clean. Their fingernails aren't cut. Uh, There's a lot of things like that. And I really do have to say that I did find that very challenging, but I actually feel like that was a huge accomplishment to get through that and be able to handle those bigger breeds and not be intimidated by them. The proper handling, how to turn it, how not to make the exhibitor mad or make the exhibitor nervous, you know? And the other thing that's really challenging is, you know, I'm, I'm very short. I mean, I'm very short. And so it's difficult to reach up there and get a 12 pound rabbit out of a coop that's too far away and not drag their toenails across the wire Um, So there's all kinds of um, interesting challenges like that. And you have to just be careful how, you know, you have to handle their rabbits better than you would handle your own. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Handling is, is a big thing. You know, exhibitors can be very forgiving if they don't agree with your comments or your decisions, but they are not very forgiving of handling that they don't approve of. (laughs) No. And of course the last thing you want to do is to hurt something. And we all know 
that you can hurt something, you can break a back and you can do it without even meaning to, or, you know, so you have to go the extra mile to be extra careful with someone else's property that you're in charge of. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, Alan, when you see, um, new judges coming up and excited about the hobby as someone who's been around for a long time. Um, do you find that inspirational? Uh, yes. If they love what they're doing, I still see some new judges that are, that are working on their license or whatever, and they don't have a passion. They don't have the passion of what they're doing. You know, uh, um, that, that seems kind of sad to me, you know, I, I, uh, it almost like they're just, it just seems like they're going through the motions and they, they need to smile and be happy about what it is that they do. I don't see a lot of new judges. I think they're, they're kind of nervous wanting to do a good job all the time, but you know what? Uh, they're all judges. You're all judges. We're all at the same level. You've gone through all the work. And now's the time that you really need to enjoy it. You know, being able to pass, being happy and have the exhibitors see the look of happiness on your face when you handle their exhibits is that's the, that's the real key to this thing. But, you know, I have to be honest. Sometimes I go to a show and just the luck of the luck of the draw for me, I didn't get a good rabbit all day. And I, Oh my God, that's hard. That's hard to do. I, you know, I mean, I, <laughs> I had guy. I had a guys, a group of guys, play a trick on me one time. These were New Zealand breeders, and it was in Tulare, California. And the guy that did it's dead now, but he built it up before this show. And, you know, he had me said, we're, we're, "We want you to do your New Zealands. We want you to come up." And I said, "I'd love to do New Zealands. I'm all set to do it." He said, "We well, we got some good ones. Just can't wait for you to do them." I started on the senior bucks and there wasn't a good one there. Started on the intermediate bucks and there wasn't a good one there. Started on the junior bucks and there was like one so-so, you know. But, I mean, the way he built this thing up, I'm thinking, oh, my God, have I lost it? Have I really am – I really, am I doing something really wrong? I was like second-guessing myself. Went through the senior does. There wasn't a decent senior doe in the whites. There wasn't a good intermediate doe in the whites. When we got to the junior does – there were 18 and the top 10 looked like they were images of themselves. I worked harder on that one class than I did on the entire variety. <laughs> and naturally that's the one that went on to be the best breed or whatever. But, you know, it, it's so funny. Uh, you, you just never know. You never know how some of the strange things. And, and I wish we would all get together sometime and share our stories because all of us have stories that, that are really, really good for us to all grow, you know, and I, I just got more stories because I've been around longer than anybody, but you know, <laughs> there's, there's a lot of good things that we could all share and we could all learn from. I, that, that's it. I think. Yeah. I like that idea. And I, that's, I think the thing I miss the most about, you know, this time when we have fewer shows is that, you know, after the, um, after the show dinner with the judges sort of conversation. Yeah. So Kathy, um, given that this is, you know, kind of a hard time for the hobby, what are some of the things that you've found inspirational over the past year or so? 
Well, just really accomplishing a goal that I didn't think was ever possible. <clears throat> I mean, it was, it just seemed so far-fetched. But, you know, I, I'm so fortunate I happen to be surrounded by rabbit judges. <laughs> and um, that makes a difference. <clears throat> I could see how if it was something that you really wanted to do, but you didn't have a lot of support, that that could really be difficult. And I feel very fortunate to be surrounded by people that have the same passion for the hobby that I do and have the expertise that they can lend to me, their knowledge. Um, those are some of the things I'm most grateful for. And it has been a very challenging year, but, you know, um, that's just life. There's ups and downs and you have to take the good with the bad. So just trying to um, focus on getting out of this uh, 2020 COVID RHD year and hopefully see so many things go back to normal. That would be really nice. Yeah, I think that's what we're all hoping for. And, and you know, those of us that are, that are passionate about this hobby are going to see that through and be there when it rebounds, confident of that. Right. Yeah, it, really, it's almost a way of weeding out the uh, weak. You know, whenever something like this happens, it's, it's the strong that survives. So the dedicated rabbit people will still always be there. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you both so much for your um, insight to the kind of different ends of, of a judging career from someone who's been around and seen many things and someone who's just getting started. Um, I hope that this will be inspirational and educational for our listeners. And maybe, maybe Kathy, your story will give some more people the, the courage and inspiration to go <laughs> pursue some licenses as well, no matter what their age is. Yeah, there'll be uh, rookies at 80 years old joining now. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> well, Alan, I think you've got some education for us to wrap this episode up. What a great episode, Brian. Thank you so much. Those are awesome questions. And um, I'm seated here or seated here tonight, uh, you know, next to Kathy and next to Alan Barr, both whom are really inspirational and big part of my life. And also in front of us tonight are our other dear friends that have gathered here for dinner when we otherwise can't have that dinner after the rabbit show to to talk rabbits and to talk cavies, to talk about our day at the rabbit show or what we're doing in our barn. Um, I hope that ARBM members around the country are, are doing the same thing, getting together despite not having a show um, and, and doing those things that are magical and inspirational to us beyond just the rabbits, but about those community relationships. And uh, we call it, you know, rabbit family, ARBA family. And I certainly am so lucky. I'm very unique in the fact that as Kathy said, like where we live, we have a lot of judges around us and, we do get the chance on a Monday night, for example, to get together and have dinner with, with breeders and friends. So um, to be seated next to them is, is tonight during this interview was, was meaningful to me. Alan Barr was one of my mentors when I got my license. He's one of my mentors continuously throughout this journey, as a, even as a licensed judge now for myself. He's one of the most passionate people in our industry, and um, I'm, I was grateful to work under him. He said to me when I worked under him uh, 15 years ago for my license, we were at a, a show down in Cardiff. 
in San Diego and he said, you know, I, if you work for your judge license, by the way, in California, we, we have a thing we say, we, you got to pass the bar. Which means <laughs> if you're working for your license, you got to pass under Alan Barr. So one of my last shows was working under Alan and he looked at me with the most stern and, and very, very um, dignified and, and meticulous eyes. He said, Alan, your job today is to find the best in show rabbit. And I'm like, uh, and I'm like, my, my teeth are chattering. My legs are, my, you can hear my knees knocking. And as he just said, by the way, which he didn't tell me that day was, you can go through a day all day long and still not find a really great <laughs> rabbit. But when he worked with me, he's like, you got to find the best in show rabbit. I'm like, oh, okay, I'm shattering. And anyway, so it's, this was a great, great interview. And I hope it's inspirational and I hope it's helpful to others that are on that pathway to getting a, a license or maybe one day will, or, or maybe like us, we are already judges and looking for a little bit more of that inspiration. So I'm going to take this education segment, our segment four of every podcast. And this is, of course, podcast eight. And I'm going to talk about the, the nitty gritty on, on how to, by text anyway, go for that judge license. And by the way, the information I'm about to read is also accessible on our ARB website. So www. That's three W's, www.arba.net slash judges. And you can find out more about how to go about your license. But I'm going to go through quickly the uh, the textbook way to get your license. First of all, you've got to be an ARBA member, a consecutive member for three years. So don't let your membership lapse. Everyone, if you're thinking about rabbits for long term, get a three-year ARBA membership. Don't buy the one year. Buy the three-year. This way you won't lapse. So you've got to have a, a membership for three consecutive years to the ARBA before you can begin the process. And that process begins by requesting an application to become an ARBA registrar. And you can do that by emailing the ARBA. That's info at ARBA.net. And you can say, hey, I've been a member for three years and I'm looking at a registrar license. How can I go about the process farther? And the ARBA is going to send you in the mail an application, which you then have to get 20 adult current ARBA members to sign off on. So they're endorsing the fact that you want to go on with this intent. After that, you're going to get some stuff in the mail, and you'll take your written exam for your registrar test as well as the oral exam. And then you work under three judges at three different shows, and you have to pass under two. The last portion of that registrar process is to work under an ARBA registrar also at an ARBA sanctioned show. And then when that's all done and, and you've passed, you get your license, and then you've got to sit on that license for two consecutive years as a registrar. And just like going for your registrar's license, you've got to then contact the ARBA at info at ARBA.net and say, hey, I've been a registrar for two consecutive years and I'm interested in getting my judge license. Please send me an application. And again, you'll get an application in the mail. You've got to get 20 adult members, uh, current members to sign off on that saying, hey, we support you in your quest to become an ARBA judge. Once that's good, you send it in with some money and the ARBA assigns you to a testing location or a, a judge to take that exam. It's just like the registrar in the fact that it's a written and oral exam. It's about 125 questions, I believe, at this point because we have so many new breeds and lots to study. Once you pass that, you work under eight judges. So that's different than the registrars where you would have worked under three. And working under eight different judges at eight different shows, you have to pass a total of six of those, by the way, six of those eight to say, hey, they know their stuff. They are ready to become a judge. And then after those eight shows, and the judges who you worked under, those we often call the assistant or were assist to those judges, they send in their paperwork and they say, hey, this judge applicant passes or not. Hopefully you get a full pass. And once that happens, the ARBA generates, of course, your license and your unique ARBA judge number, which is unique to each and every one of us. And that's it. I mean, that sounds easy, right? <laughs> as, as we just spent <laughs> over an hour talking to these guys about the, the other parts of it. But 
that on paper is how you go about your judge license. And again, you can find that information on ARBA.net slash judges. And like our guests talked today, um, it's never too early to begin learning. Um, Hands-on learning is critical to really being prepared to take these steps. So talk to breeders, talk to judges, stick around after the show, um, write for judges. That's one of the best ways to learn about what judges are looking at, learn about giving comments, um, the good, the bad, and the ugly, write for judges. You know, I, I mentioned earlier when we talked about this time in 1986 and we went back and looked at a 1986 Hollenlop guidebook and going back to what Chris Emney said in her district column for the Hollenlop Club, she said in bold letters, participation. And what better way to prepare yourself for learning more about the standard and the process to becoming a, a judge than to get behind the table, participate as a, as a writer, write for some breeds you don't know about beyond just yours. It's not just about writing for the breed that you have on the table that day, but stick stick with a judge all day long and, and listen to what they've got to say. say. And at that point, you're just taking down notes, but you're also just like a sponge and, and, and soaking it all in. And, and that will help you. And you'll remember those moments longer than, than memorizing text in a standard for, 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 for gosh sakes, like just get me on the table, participate. I think that's, that's great advice. Yeah. And, and let the judge know that, that you're trying to learn, you're thinking about studying for license or, you know, maybe if you're a youth breeder that you're participating in judging contests and then we'll really kick it into overdrive and, you know, show you little interesting things or, you know, let you get your hands on some of these animals. You know, and and one thing Kathy didn't mention, and this is a, a big nod to what she did long before she was a registrar, she was working with judges behind the table as a writer and, you know, when the time is right, when it's not a real busy day, she'd say like, Hey, can you explain what you just, what you just said? Maybe it's in between a class, but she was there behind the table doing her job as a participant and a volunteer all while at the same time learning those things that later inspired her and, and, and taking us to, to text what she had done in person as that volunteer. And it's okay to work behind the table, even in an unofficial capacity. Um, if you're doing more than just writing, of course, you've got to secure the, the, the permission of the judge and the show superintendent. And of course, you don't want to do a really busy show where lots is going on, but there is definitely an opportunity to, to learn at any level, whether it's your first year or you've been doing it for 50 years and you're deciding to go on to an official license to get behind the table, volunteer, help the show. It's, it's a full circle event. Yes, absolutely. Well, thank you for joining us for this episode. And um, what is it we say every time, Alan? I I talk rabbits, talk cavies, right? Talk rabbits and talk cavies. We will see you next time. Thank you for joining us. Bye-bye. While this podcast would not be possible without the American Rabbit Breeders Association, it does not constitute an official communication of the association. The information, viewpoints, and opinions expressed herein are those of the hosts and our guests and are not endorsed by the ARBA. To learn more about the ARBA, please visit www.arba.org.